Hello, Marlene, and welcome to New Books Network. Hello. Glad to be here. Marlene is the author of a series, Son of a Preacher, Greenwood and Archer, in addition to Ruth's Redemption, as well as the Be Happy series. But today we're going to talk about Son of a Preacher and Greenwood and Archer. Marlene, I have to say I enjoyed this series. It was fabulous. It was entertaining and historical. I also then passed it on to my mother. So let me ask you, how did the series begin for you? When I first learned about the Tulsa race riot, I was horrified, but I was also fascinated because the information was also about a prosperous district called Greenwood District, and I had never heard of this. So I wanted to explore it more, and when I looked for a subject for historical romance, that came to mind. Do you have any one particular um, historical moment that sparked like that one seed as you're looking, you have the Tulsa race riot, um, then you have romance. Was there any one particular thing in history that sparked it in addition to the riot and the romance? Like where'd your romance come from? Um, my imagination. Okay. Basically. Um, and usually a story comes from my spirit and I wrap the historical romance around the rest of the story. Nice. What do you want your readers to take away from a son of a preacher and Greenwood Archer, Greenwood and Archer? Well, you know, people have asked me that question a lot and I usually stumble around trying to find some intellectual answer. But to be honest with you, what a person takes away depends solely on who they are where they are mentally and psychologically, emotionally. They will take away, it's a very, what they take away is very individual. And when I write, I don't have a set goal for that. I'm a storyteller. So I write a story. I do have uh, a general goal that I want to display God in his, actions in our lives, and how we can see God, can trust God, and just to show how he works in our everyday lives and in the tragedies of life or the common aspects of life. Beyond that, each story would be different. Um, For Preacher Man, for example, I think the theme came out for me to trust God and trust God in every area as far as even picking the person that you marry. That came out in the romantic aspect. Um, As far as the historical aspect, it would be the strength that the people of God had and how you had to trust God in the midst of all that mayhem and turmoil for your life and to rebuild your life afterwards. So I would, the short answer would be, what I want people to get out of it is whatever they need to where they are at the time when they're reading it. And God will highlight certain things when you read things. I want them to enjoy the story. I want them to see God in some significant way. And I want them to understand the historical significance of whatever went down in this place 
the uh, race riot and to understand that this was a community of prosperous black people. And that's about it. I, um, I, I too was drawn to the historical um, facts, the historical piece of these novels, um, something that I hadn't heard of before, the, you know, the prosperity is black, the prosperity, this riot in Tulsa. And I felt as though this should be a book that's in the classroom. You know, I just, I read that and I said, this is a book that teaches history that we don't often learn. So with that, how do you think, um, your books can contribute to African-American studies? Well, I do have a, a penchant for historical facts. And I do um, like to find historical events that take place that are relevant to the African-American experience. That's my pet. So I look for things that are not readily known or not highly known. Or if they are known, there may be something about it that we were erroneously taught. Like you say, certain things in school, which when I was growing up, I wasn't taught too much of African-American histories, period. Very little. Um, something that would correct something that we were taught that was not right. Or to shed a different light on it. Um Maybe look at it in a different way, a more, a more humanistic way, a or a more um, psychological way to shed a different light on it than just bare historical fact. Um, I think that when we look at African American studies, we 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 go at it usually just like any historical study, but. Because so much has been left out, because there's so much we don't know, you can't just look at it as, okay, this was history. You have to learn about the people, learn about what they went through. Why did this happen? When did this happen? What was the racial climate at the time when it happened? So it takes, it, it's a lot of dissection that goes into African-American studies. My stories, I think, Although they're fictional, they wrap around fact. I always try to insert real facts, even certain names. Most of the characters are fiction, especially the main characters. But I always throw in true people that did get affected by whatever the event was. For example, in Son of a Preacher Man, the doctor who was killed, that really happened, and that was his uh, true identity and his name. I can't even remember his name. I write so many stories. Yeah. But but if you read Preacher Man, you can sort of remember the doctor. Mm-hmm. And um, he was a real person. I used his real name. Mm-hmm. And he he did die behind the riot. So I and a couple of the names, like the people who owned the newspaper, they I use their real names because they were the people who owned the newspaper. The newspapers were true names of those newspapers at that time. The newspaper that published the story about the guy assaulting the woman in the elevator—that really happened. That was the real newspaper that it was written the name. 
So there's fact woven with fiction. Now, it's hard if you don't know the incident to know what is fact, what is fiction. But one of the things that I hope my stories do is spark interest so that you go back and research on your own anything that you didn't know and dig deeper into it. My story might gloss across it because it's not a history so per se, but you can go back on your own and dig deeper and learn more, and then you will know how much of it was fact and how much of it was fiction. Thank you for that. Uh, what I also noticed with fact and fiction, how well it is, you you cross the race lines because not only is there racial tension, there is biracial love, you know, in yeah. the midst of um, of this horror, horrifying riot, but in the midst of this wonderful thing. So it, it may, you speak to humanity, right? You speak to humanity with um, the biracial love. Now, was that based on fiction or was it just, Humanity that because in this time when there was so much hatred um, for each other between the races, there, the hatred is kind of binary to the love. So did you create? Well, that was fiction. That was, was fiction. But I, I wanted it in there because, like you said, I wanted to bring humanity to this scenario. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to show because I know there were interracial relationships even back then because they were interracial relationships even much earlier than that time. That although there's difference in the culture, when it comes to love, it doesn't matter. People don't care. People are drawn together. And sometimes race doesn't matter to individuals. And they will come together. And the laws say one thing. The the laws at one time, misogynation laws where you couldn't intermarry, you wasn't supposed to have sex or have babies together. And then the culture, even when the laws were ignored or, or the laws were changed, then the culture clung on to it. You're not supposed to intermarry, you're not supposed to and even today, a lot of people have problems with that issue. Yeah. But Love is love, and love doesn't know color. So I wanted to show that even though that was a racially stringent period in our history, people still fell in love interracially. And I wanted it to be people who you would least think would fall in love with someone outside of their race. The sheriff was a bigot at one time. He was a bigot, and he was the last person that you would think. But that's what love does. I, I'm a romantic at heart also, so the power of love is something I love to write about. You're right. When I when I realized who the sheriff was in love with, I was like, wow, it threw me for a loop. But it, it showed <laughs> just what you said. Love crosses, love crosses the boundary. It sees no color. doesn't see color. That's right. Body. And I showed it also with um, Dooley's parents. Yes. Um, and what they, they actually died because of their love. When the Ku Klux Klan, you know, killed his parents and burnt mm-hmm. the house, killed his mm-hmm. father. You know, mm-hmm. that was to show what a sacrifice it was at that time mm-hmm. to go that route. But people still did it. 
as and, dangerous as it was. As dangerous as it was. And it's amazing that although these are historical facts, 1920s, you know, this is, let me not get stuck on my math, 2017, so that would be about uh, 50, 60, 70, 80 years later, even more. We still have that. Yeah, it's almost 100 years later. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, 97 years later. There you go, 97 years later. Exactly. I always say I'm a writer, not a mathematician. My numbers will get all messed up. <laughs> <laughs> so, exactly. And it's almost, it's just the same. It's that three steps forward of change, two steps backwards. So, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Okay. And, and but, but human nature is still the same. Exactly. The culture and the laws change, but because people are still falling in love across that color line. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and, and how I know it was done, I have people in my family, back in my generation. I have a, a, a cousin, Cousin John. Well, he's been dead for years. He lived until he was 107 years old. But the one thing he talked about is when they burned him out of Georgia. They set the house on fire trying to kill him and his whole family. And then that's when they moved to South Carolina because his wife, Cousin Laura, and this is the funny thing. She wasn't totally white, but she looked white. She looked like she was just a white woman, but she was a biracial woman. But because of how she looked, they thought he had a white woman, and they burnt him out, sent him out of that state. So it was hard. I mean, even though she was, and I think she might have been like maybe an eighth black. They said she didn't have much black blood in her, but she did have some. But it was hard to be with someone of another race, but people still did. And I find that amazing. Yeah. And that has to be a stronger love than anything, if you ask me. Exactly. Exactly. Because not only are you keeping your own relationship together, you're keeping the people, you know, those voices, what the, like you said, what the culture is saying, you have to deal with that outside of your own personal um, lives. It is. Yeah. Very and then you have to think about the children and what they're mm-hmm. going to go through. That's correct. That's right. What the children have to go through. Right. Makes and that's sense. why not to give too much of the story ending away. Um, people fussed at me because of how I ended the sheriff and Ada's relationship. Mm-hmm. They didn't like it. Uh, but I said I wanted to be realistic. Yeah. And although some people could weather that type of storm, a lot of people couldn't. That's right. And that's so right. So that's it's, it's, it's both ways. We're used to saying, "Oh, they strong and they stood a time." I mean, there's a there's a movie out called Loving that's been out recently. Yes, I haven't seen about, it yet. Uh, white man and the black woman, and mm-hmm. they had to go to court and they stayed together and all this. But a lot of people didn't. They might have loved someone, but they couldn't take that. They couldn't take it. So I wanted to show that this thing works like Dooley's parents, they stuck it out to their death. But everybody won't stick it out. And that's reality. That's reality. That's what, yeah. Yeah, that's, I think that's what I so much enjoyed about the series. It just felt so real. You know, it wasn't as if it was just happy, happy. You know, everything wasn't yeah. happy, happy. And life isn't always a happy ending. Um, I no. remember this section with the suicide. Um, with the love interest and and I just thought, wow, this is um that just kind of took my heart, you know. I was like, 
here she is, this woman, she's in love. She's more than in love, but she's a little, um, I don't want to say crazy. She <laughs> has mental issues. Yeah, she has she mental, has mental issues. issues. That was yeah. it. And again, you deal with something that's so human that sometimes we don't want to talk about. Right. And, yeah. and, and and that was that was the point of that. The mental yeah. health and I think this country, this world maybe, but this country for sure is in a mental health crisis. Okay. So I wanted to bring out the point that we ignore and and if you listen to what her father said, and especially in the African American community. Correct. We will ignore mental health issues. We don't like to deal with them. We want to say, oh, buck up and get over it. That's right. And in my younger days and in the past generations, they would whisper about, you well, you, you know, just ignore her. She she had a nervous breakdown and so-and-so, or, or, or Uncle Joe is just crazy. We all have crazy people in our family. We have traditionally ignored mental health issues. And, and partially it's economic. I mean, who, who had the money to be going sitting up on some psychiatrist's couch or or, or, or whatever it took. If you didn't have money, even poor white people, you ignored those things because there was nothing you could do. Correct. Correct. Uh-huh. And so even now, though, even though there there are things we could do, the African-American community, along with the Asian community, are very poor in response to their mental illness issues. I think we're getting a little better, but we still have a long way to go. Do you think it's because we have been so oppressed and looked down on for so many years? We just kind of want to, we don't want to address this because we're, we're blamed and it wouldn't matter because if, if an African-American or an Asian did something that was out of the way, it just, you know, it'd still be frowned upon on the out by the other, by us. Whereas another culture, if they do something, they immediately attach mental illness and it's okay. Well, I can't speak for the Asian culture because they're from like a whole different bit. But and the reason I included them is because a therapist had told me that. Mm-hmm. I, and she, I was talking about the African. She said, well, you think they're bad. She said the Asians are worse than the African-Americans about mental health issues. Okay. Um, I think for us, because life has always been a hard struggle, yeah. you didn't have the energy or the time or the where for all to deal with it. It was something that you could just, just look to put this is I'm trying to put food on the table. I'm trying to keep the roof over your head, some clothes on your back. I don't have anything left in me to sit here and pat your hand and say, there, there, it'll be okay. Yeah. I'm too drained fighting that fight, fighting the world. And I just don't have it. Now that was more back in the day, our grandparents and the older generation, as we come up more into today, it's that, that training and that like you do what you are used to doing, what you've seen done, that traditional carry on the thing we also because of the hard struggles in life we had to be strong and we thought it was weak we were told it's weakness you can't be weak be strong so we're always trying to seem strong even when you're hurting 
you try to seem strong. Now, the younger generation, not so much. But I would say for people maybe uh, 45 on up, 45, 50 on up, you were supposed to be strong. You you could not buckle. You could not fold. And nobody wanted to hear it anyway if you did. <laughs> so you didn't have anywhere to take it. If you did want help, you couldn't afford it. And so there was nothing to push you that way to get help or to make people stop. Unless it was something really dangerous, like somebody's putting guns in people's heads or acting really dangerous, and then they would slap you in a, in a mental house somewhere, and that's it. So I think it was because of our mindset of life is hard enough. We don't have time. This is this is this is something that you can just get over, just so you get over it. You got to be strong. And when you have those everyday struggles just to survive, it seems like a luxury to be able to go somewhere and sit up there and talk to a therapist and whine about oh nobody this and all and that's what it seems. It's whining. Right. It's you're whining, you're weak, you're this, you're that. And so because of that, there's a lot of dysfunction among African-Americans because we never addressed our psychological problems from a historical standpoint, from the, 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 the um, residual things that came out of slavery to our personal family issues. We, we don't resolve those things. We just push them aside and try to move on. Go get over it. And the white race doesn't like us to talk about slavery, and, and they have that attitude where they tell us, oh, get over it. It hasn't. I had nothing to do with it. Uh, it's over. But there are residual things that went down from that that we have never addressed. We, don't, we might not even know how to address it. We don't know how to label it. No one wants to acknowledge it. Everyone just wants to sweep everything under the rug. So we psychologically, I guess for lack of a better term, are messed up. Love that. And and exactly what you say is exactly what you do in the novels. The characters are just that real. They are just that real. Yeah. Exactly. I agree with you. We're just that messed up. We are. And it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. So I have this last question to ask you. I'm in the book because even earlier you said that, you know, the idea is for the reader to learn how to trust God, right, in every area. Um, so there are a lot of Christian principles um, within this series. So how are Christian principles and the lives of African Americans connected? When the enslaved people embraced Christianity, it became a lifesaver for them. It became something they clung to. It gave them hope. And it influenced everything they did, and it was part of everything. As they emerged out of enslavement, their communities was centered around Christian values and principles. And it carried on for decades. It's not like that now, but it used to be. And as they progressed, it stayed for a long time. 
if you look at the leaders, all the people, Frederick Douglass and all those people, those were godly people. You listen to what they said or what they wrote. They spoke highly of Christian principles and values. They spoke of God. They spoke of Jesus. Um, the church was the center hub of a community. The preachers were celebrities, for lack of a better term. They were the people who people went to, the go-to folks. Not the sports people, but the preachers, the men of God. People had a close connection to spiritual things, and they lived their lives accordingly. And the African-American race progressed accordingly, which I'm sad to say has turned about. And we're doing just the opposite. And in my personal opinion, that's why we're sinking like a rock in the river. And God, how to say this, what we used to believe seemed to work for us. What we supposedly ignorantly believed, what the intellectuals tell us we were foolish for believing, but it all seemed to work. It didn't work quickly, but it worked. Now, in all our intellectual and universal religion and all this, it's not working. So I feel like go back to what works. Our families were more united. We had more community among the African Americans. And all of that stems from Christian principles. Learning how to apply what the Bible says in our everyday lives. Having the strength. How do you think our ancestors survived what they went through? They were physically strong, true. They came out of pagan religions, true. But once they embraced Christianity, they were full force. And I believe that is what propelled them to be the strong people and the focused people that they became. With all our added education, our sophistication, our worldliness, and cult cultural acquiescence, we have lost that. And we have lost community. And we have lost our godliness. We, and, and, and I'm talking not just to the secular world, but yeah. the church folks, too. <laughs> right. You're, you're not making a distinction, right? Right, Absolutely. right. Absolutely. Because there's one thing to play church. It's another thing to live a godly life. Right. Absolutely. And they're not always the same. Hopefully, you would hope it would be the same, but it's not always. We have lost a lot of things when we let go of those Christian principles and of our, our, our connection to the Word of God, to the Bible. That and, I, and, I, and I think it, it helped, it's helping to destroy us and weaken us as a people. As a people, right, as one community. And that yes. makes, yeah, it makes sense. It's, and just, it's amazing just how you feel, um, just uh, the thoughts that you have about the community. Community and, and Christian principles are steeped in the series and it, it does, it gives you this feeling of nostalgia as if I rem I want to be there. You know, I want that type of community. I want people fighting for me and me fighting for them and us living together. Even the families as dysfunctional as they are, they're still a community. Yes. They're still together. They're still together. They're still That's together. Right. Those, those people went through a horrifying experience, but they built that place up and built it back up better than it was before. Sure. And that, and that strength came from somewhere. It wasn't just basic human strength. That was divine strength and divine intervention. Marlene, this has been a 
fabulous talk. Is there something you'd like to add before we have to say goodbye? I just want people to understand that Christian writing does not have to be boring. That's something else that I try to write, keep in mind as I'm writing. You want to be entertaining because we live in a culture where everyone wants to be entertained. So you want to be entertaining, but you can still be meaningful and purposeful in your entertaining. You don't have to use lots of foul language. You don't have to have overt sexuality going. You can do these things with a certain amount of dignity and still be realistic to what happens in this world. I touch subjects that a lot of Christians don't like to deal with. My publisher cut out a lot of stuff that I wrote. There was a scene in, in, in Ruth's Convention, which was, and they just took the whole scene out. And I'll talk about that when we talk about that book. Okay. But they took, oh, well, they took a scene out of Preacher Man. They took the scene out when Savannah had the abortion. Moody oh. does not deal with anything that's controversial. They did not want to talk about abortion. They didn't want, uh, uh, I used the word nigger. They took that out um, because they don't want anything that's controversial. But it's and, reality. Or even, I, I had a scene also in there where Cord beats up on Savannah when he finds out about her and the boyfriend. Yeah. Took that out. No, no women abuse. <laughs> so they took things out that they thought would be controversial. But they also said to me, you wrote them very well. It was not obnoxious. And I wrote the abortion scene. I, did, I mean, I didn't go into the medical part of it. But I wrote about when she was talking, what it, how she felt, how she had doubts up to the last minute, what the nurse said to her. And enough. And it didn't condone abortion. Right. It let you know this is not a good thing. But it was realistic, and yeah. they just didn't want to deal with it. The word nigger they didn't want to use because they felt it would offend black people. But I said to them, I'm a black woman and I'm writing this. I said, in order to be realistic, this is what those people would have said at that time. Or, you know, if it's what they were said, then just put it in. I mean, I said, I don't have a problem with it. I'm black. If it's you, it's not like I'm calling somebody that. It's just what it was at the time. And it's what the person would have said. No, 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 take it out. So I had to be to, to be very creative and find other insulting terms. And I didn't have it in there, but maybe two or three times. Yeah. Other insulting terms that they used to um, instead of that word. Somebody told me, well, you did a good job because I never even stopped to think that they didn't have that. They didn't use that. You didn't use that word. So I tried to use other insulting terms. And you did a good job. I agree with the per the other person. I and now that we're talking about it, you're right. I didn't even realize you didn't use that term. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and and it took it took a little creativity, <laughs> but um, you can have interesting. You can have relative. You can have good Christian fiction and entertain and educate and not be vulgar and. And it can be interesting. It doesn't have to be boring. I hear people say all the time, uh, that Christian fiction, that's boring. It, it doesn't have to be boring. And, and that's, that, that's what I want. I wanted something that would entertain, but still educate you, still show God, and not be, you know, just like 
I guess they think it's all about the Amish people. You can write good Christian fiction. And I think a lot of people in the sex, sex, secular world would read Christian fiction if they didn't think it was going to be boring. Right. This is not boring. <laughs> These books are not boring. I'm going to say that. And what I'm excited about is having you back on at the end of April, where we will talk about Ruth's redemption. Um, right. Right. Yes. And redemption is a huge word. So what did Ruth do and why is she being redeemed? Right. So, <laughs> is the question. Oh, Marlene, this has been a great pleasure, a great pleasure to speak with you. And I My do, pleasure also. I do look forward to not only Ruth's redemption, and I just have to plug in because I was on your website, and there's the Be Happy series. And I'm very interested to know this be happy because I'm like, huh, is it happy, happy, joy, joy, but you can't give it away. You can't give it away. Well, I can just tell you off the cuff, it's it's contemporary. It's not historical. Right. Okay. It's contemporary. And it's about love and romance in today's world for a Christian woman who's looking for love, trying to be a Christian, trying to do it God's way. Trying not to sin, trying, you know, and and finding love and waiting for love and all the things that go in when you're a normal person in the culture we live in today. So that's uh, a lot of what feeds Be Happy. And it's and it's it's humorous too. And it's humorous. So it's a very lighthearted, easy read, humorous, and it's about all the things that we deal with: family dysfunction and everything, you know. So it's a humorous contemporary, um, but it also has Christian values. So I say thank you again for your time for this wonderful interview, and um, I look forward to having you back again. I look forward to coming back. <laughs> 